Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. I am Sam Parada, and I'm with... Adam Nazarov. Yes, again, the only two people that you've ever heard on this show. <laughs> uh, if you've been listening to us, you know that we are in a series uh, on the doctrines of grace, which have often been called the five points of Calvinism, uh, just, you know, represented by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, And so you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So this, I mean, obviously, if you've been listening to us, we've kind of talked about this a while, but these are some of the most hotly contested doctrines in all of uh, Christian doctrine, and people have been split over these things for centuries. Uh, It's not a new debate, and, uh, but it's a, it's an important one, and I, and I think it, I think it's some people say, you know, why are we even debating over these things? This is just divisive. We're just dividing the church uh, over these doctrines uh, because there's such a, I, I don't know if it's an even split, but because there's such a split, you know, obviously that means that both sides are finding their uh, justification on their position in Scripture. Therefore, they're both biblical. So let's just stop arguing about it. And I want to say, well, that's not necessarily the case. Are they both biblical? Are do we see both of these in Scripture? Um, and I don't think that's the case. I think when you actually look at the Scriptures and you do sound uh, exegesis using sound hermeneutical principles, uh, that Arminianism is not found in the Scriptures. Uh, I think Calvinism is. Now, whether you call it Calvinism or not doesn't matter. We're just talking about the doctrines. We're talking about what Scripture says. I don't care if it's called Calvinism. It can be called whatever you want it to be called. But we just ended a three-part series on the doctrine of election, uh, which is represented by the U, unconditional election, in the acronym TULIP. And uh, I thought we handled it pretty well. We we gave it enough time, Adam, don't you think? To I mean, I mean it's a topic you could give years. Years to. to and so. thousands and thousands of pages have been written about it. So by no means did we even come close to exhausting it. But I, I've, I've felt like we gave it enough where we feel like we can move on to the next one, yeah. at least a little bit. Uh, hopefully it was a little bit of some help to you, or hopefully we didn't totally confuse you more. Um, and maybe you're already consider yourself a Calvinist, and you're just like, yeah, I just enjoyed listening to it. Maybe I learned a couple things or a couple ways to explain this to my Arminian friends. Or maybe you're an Arminian, and... Maybe you just got all riled up and hated everything we said and are still stuck in your way of thinking, or maybe not. Maybe you were maybe persuaded by some scripture or not. I don't know. Hopefully the scripture persuades you, not me. Right. That's the point. Right. Uh, so if, 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 if the scriptures that we present don't persuade you, then I have no power in myself to do that. But that's what we are trying to do is, is persuade to biblical doctrine to what the bible has to say about certain things and we think that these doctrines that the scripture presents are are important god has given us all of scripture uh to i mean all scripture is god breathed and it's profitable to equip us for every good work so we need all of scripture and so if these doctrines are in scripture they're there for a reason and we should know them we should trust them we should we should submit to them and we should incorporate them and apply them to our lives. So there's there's a reason why the doctrine of election is in the scriptures. There's a reason why. And there's it does something in our life and does something in our faith that 
is good and results in the ability or equips us in the ability to do good works. And part of that, I think, for me personally in the doctrine of election uh, is the ability to persevere uh, through trials and suffering, uh, the ability to have uh, a, a courage and a joy in evangelism. Uh, there's a lot of things that the doctrine of election does for my own life, comforts me greatly in some of the hardest parts of life. But nonetheless, we're moving on to L, limited atonement, which is out of the five points of Calvinism, which this is kind of funny, like five points of Calvinism are hotly debated, again, like I said, and people have disagreed with them forever. But out of the five, limited atonement is the the most highly contested of the five. So there's people that would consider themselves four-point Calvinists. I actually run a, run into quite a few people that would say, yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to agree with, with Calvinism and with the doctrines of Calvinism, uh, but I just can't get behind limited atonement. I just can't do it. I can't see how that's possible. I'm not willing to go that far. Uh, whatever you, you hear people say. Um, I've heard people say that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, it, was, it wasn't so long ago that I was in a similar situation. It, I think the language that, that trips people up, and certainly tripped me up for a while, was uh, Christ's blood is, like Christ's sacrifice is only, is only good enough to save X number of people. Right. You know, wh- let, let, so DX, let, let's just say it's, you know, 300 trillion. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so um, then all of a sudden, if God wanted to save that 300 and trillion and first person, right. uh, sorry, there's not enough it's power limited, in the blood of Christ. Power, yep. I think that's the image that gets evoked when we talk about limited atonement, and people are like, no, that doesn't make sense. Christ is God. Right. And I think what's important to understand is that we're not talking about limiting the power of Christ's sacrifice. Right. That's not what what we're talking about. Uh, what is in question is who gets the redemption from Christ's sacrifice. And the reality is if, we, we've talked about how these doctrines are logically cohesive. And we're not going to just stick on a logical train because we've also talked about how if you push doctrines too far, they you really end up in heresy. If you push doctrines to their extreme, you end up in heresy. But there is a logical cohesion here, which makes sense because God created logic. And there, so if you, if you start with total depravity, which we adequately demonstrated from Scripture, if people cannot seek God, then God has to seek them. And so we find that connection into election. Well, uh, as we read in Romans 9, there are vessels that were prepared by their own sin for destruction, and there are vessels that God has prepared for mercy. So if God has prepared people for salvation and for mercy, that means that there are people who are not. Right. And so really, unless you're willing to take a stance— of universalism right. that says everyone is saved, on some level you understand limited atonement. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully we can 
kind of clarify that because that's really that's really the the only other answer. Right. It's either uh, the atonement is limited. Right. Or it's or or we're in universalism where there doesn't need to be atonement because everybody's going to heaven anyway. Right. Right. And yeah, it really comes down to two like. It's so rooted in soteriology. I mean, obviously, we have the word atonement in this the, the the title of this doctrine. And so how did Jesus atone for the sins of those who you would save? Like, how is this possible? How are we saved? And we've, we've talked about that already. Um, so we're not going to really hash out soteriology right now. But basically, the point is, is like, okay, for, for somebody to be justified in the eyes of God, for somebody to inherit eternal life— uh, and not go to hell. One, they need their sin punished because God is just, so therefore He will He will He will leave no sin unpunished. To leave a sin unpunished is unjust of Him because sin is a wicked, horrible thing, completely against who He is in His nature. So He has to punish sin. So we believe that Christ, and this is kind of where limited atonement comes in, uh, took the sin of the elect on His shoulders in His being uh, two thousand years ago on the cross, uh, and He faced the wrath of God the Father for those sins. So God the Father punished real, tangible sin. It, it was real. It actually happened. There was a real punishment there. And and then, obviously, okay, sin's punished. The, the next thing that we need is a righteousness. We don't have a righteousness of our own. The Bible says that we have, our righteousness is like filthy rags, which is just, mm-hmm. it's nothing. It's, 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 it's nothing. We have nothing to offer. So Christ lived a perfect life, and he gives us his righteous record, an alien righteousness. And we the the fancy or technical term is called imputation, but it, you can think of it as just being accredited. Uh, he gives us, imputes to us, his righteousness through faith. And we already talked about how faith is a gift because we cannot muster up faith in our being because we hate God because of our total depravity. So we are given faith through faith righteousness, Totally a work of God. That's why we're saved by grace. We don't earn it. And so, that's atonement. Like, and if that happened to everyone, mm-hmm. then then everyone would be saved. Right. And so, because we see such a clear teaching in Scripture that not everyone is saved, such clear dis- depictions, really, of, of even the judgment in Revelation, mm-hmm. where there are many people that are thrown into the lake of fire for eternity how i mean how clearly is it is it seen in the new testament that wide is the path to hell and to destruction and narrow is the is the way and the gate to eternal life so yeah. there is just this very very clear teaching throughout the bible not yeah. just the new testament and we'll look at some of those yeah. examples it's important you know, not that we want to have a fire and brimstone discussion here, but this is important to understand that it, um, you have to ha- hold the position of universalism that everybody's going to be saved. Yeah. If you don't hold the position of limited atonement. Yeah. Otherwise, you're being illogical. You're not. Yeah. And that's when we're again talking again about this the cohesiveness of these doctrines. You know, it, it, it fits logically that if election is true and total depravity is true, then it has to be true that limited atonement is true. And again, we're not just going to say we're just proving it that way and just not look at right. the Bible. No, we're going to look at the Bible and prove it that way. But 
there is a logical cohesiveness of the Arminian doctrines, and so the Arminian doctrine literally on this point is unlimited atonement. So it's unlimited. It's, it, it applies to everyone. It's it, Christ's atonement is unlimited, which, you know, like Adam was saying, certainly a better way to probably name this doctrine for the Calvinist position is definite atonement. Is atonement is definite for the elect, or you could say limited redemption, like he redeems a limited amount of people, because uh, the the word limited atonement can connotate that. Yeah, it, it's just so a, many of the Calvinist doctrines and like using the tulip names are right. really poorly named. Poorly named. It, this is a poorly named doctrine. It really is. But just because it's named bad, you know, don't don't judge a book by right. its cover type of thing here. Let's dig into it. Like, come on now, don't just throw it off because of the name. Right. And you know, I mean, let's talk too about the the illogical aspect of the Arminian stance here, where it's unlimited, where Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross is effective for everybody, because that, that's the other side of the argument. Because an Arminian would say, "Well, I'm not a universalist. There are people who are going to go to hell, but yeah. Christ died, and Christ's sacrifice was effective for them too." So it. Then what you're saying is that when God sends somebody to the lake of fire, yeah, that the that for eternity, keep in mind, right, that Christ already paid for their sin, right, and that wasn't enough, right. So now this individual is going to go to the lake of fire to pay for their sin again, right? It doesn't I mean, like that, what. So, so you're that you're, sounds unjust. Yeah, if if you hold the position of okay, well, I'm not a universalist, but I don't believe in limited atonement, so I'm going to hold this unlimited atonement thing and say that Christ's sacrifice is effective for everybody. Uh, what you're accusing God of is injustice by means of double punishment yeah. for sin. Yeah, or another way to think about it is like. It was only partially effective. Like it only, and this is how it. This is how their doctrines, the Arminian doctrines, kind of start to cohesively fit together. Is like uh, they want to hold on to this belief that man has the ultimate or or active will in salvation. So they want to hold on as best they can to this belief that it's it's we who are able to choose God. We are able to reason ourselves to God. We are able to choose faith. Uh, so. In order to do that, then what they have to logically do is diminish the power of the atonement. And so if you want to talk about limited atonement, who actually limits atonement is the Arminians. Because what they say is that Christ's atonement, Christ's work on the cross, it didn't do everything it was supposed to do. It was limited in its, and really you could say in its power. So let's just say... Jesus on the cross, he he atoned for fifty percent of of sin, or whatever you want, however you want to think about it. There's something, there's something not quite full about it. He needs to, he needs to, and it, it's so, con, it's really confusing actually, because what's actually going on on the cross then? Like, okay, is is Jesus actually getting punished for man's sin? If you have this Arminian belief, well, right. I mean, it, it's a it's a works based salvation, really, because right. it's saying that. You have to—it's putting ownership back on man right. to to then have an interaction with God to say, uh, I'm going to make this decision 
to because of some brilliance of my own, I'm going to make a decision to seek after God. Right. Which, again, yep. you know, I mean, we we just proved it. I mean, we proved that man can't do that. Right. And so, what again? You can you can ask yourself the question. Is ask yourself the question. What does the Bible say happened on the cross? And the Bible is very, very, very clear. What happened on the cross is Jesus became sin. He who had no sin became sin and was punished on the cross for the elect's sin. It's very clear. There was a real punishment there. There was real justice happening on sin. So it's just like, what Arminians are left up doing, left doing is like they're, they're it's almost like the, the crucifixion is just a symbol for something. And this is where you can start to drift into a, into a false gospel of just like a false gospel of just pure love. God loves us so much that he would just display his love by dying for us. Well, that's kind of dumb. Like, what do you mean? He just loved us so much that he was just willing to display it by dying. It's symbolic. Like nothing actually real happened there. He just, right. Which, like, what? And, like, we might have people listening who aren't all that studied in the Old Testament. Sure. But one of the things that, if you study the Old Testament, even a little bit, you begin to see that the cross is not something that God just decided to do and that Jesus suddenly submitted to. Everything that we believe is based on a determined and revealed and concrete thing that's existed since the fall. Mm -hmm. And that is that blood pays for sin. Right. Uh, We see this immediately after the fall. Yep. um, When God makes clothing for Adam and Eve. Yeah. Uh you know, there was life that was that was ended in order to make that clothing. Sure. Uh we see this uh with um the the mosaic law. Mm-hmm. Um the well for, first we see it in the Passover, right? I mean even before the mosaic law we see it in the Passover in Egypt the they they it's... spread the lamb's blood over the houses yep. that the angel would then pass over. Right. And so what did that blood do? That blood caused complete and and, and utter salvation from that night right. uh, for the people of Israel. Right. Anybody who, like, nobody died in the houses. Right. It didn't matter if they were the firstborn or if they were the Egyptian or anything. Right. If that blood was present on the door, nobody in that house died. Right. It was a complete salvation. And it really didn't even matter the type of person. Maybe right. this Jew uh, living in Egypt was actually probably a pretty bad person. You know, like we know they all were. They were mm-hmm. wicked people too. But simply because the blood of the lamb was over the doorpost, the angel of death passed over. Yep. Uh, we also see it with um, the yearly sacrifice of the goat. They would put the sin on the goat, and then they would send send that animal out of the... Yeah, the scapegoat. Yeah, the scapegoat. We, they'd send that that goat away. And Christ became the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. It, it, it takes blood to pay for sin. Right. And in, in the Old Testament, that blood was always the entirety. It paid for the entirety of the sin. It didn't pay for some of it. And that's exactly what we see with Christ. Christ's 
sacrifice is a complete atonement for sin. That's why Paul refers to it as justification. Right. I mean, exactly. So with all that said, you know, we do want to ground this in Scripture. You know, I've heard it said, like, okay, yeah, we we get we get pretty good, well— I would say we get unbelievably amazing scriptural evidence for total depravity, unbelievably amazing scriptural evidence for election, clear as day. And then people want to say, ah, but we don't really have anything on limited atonement. It's just you're just you're just coming to that from a logical deduction or it's just yeah, it logically fits that makes sense, but we don't actually see it in scripture. And then you might have people say, well, we actually see the opposite in scripture, and we'll talk about what we call the problem passages. Uh, and we really want to talk about those because they're, they're, they're very interesting passages and they're in mm-hmm. Scripture. So what do they mean? we got to know what they mean. But before we get into the problem passages, we do want to talk... I do think there are passages in the Scripture that would defend uh, limited atonement. And I know you have one pulled up right now. I don't know what... what... Yeah, so these are ones that we read um, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I referenced one of them already in Romans 9. Um, Paul specifically talks about how there are vessels that were prepared for wrath. Of course, we talked about how that's by their own sin. And then uh, how there are vessels that God has prepared for mercy. So we see that in Romans 9, 22, and 23. Um, but then last week, we talked about in Romans nine twenty seven, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel... Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So, I mean, right there we see that, um, you know, this is an anti-universalism passage. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only only a remnant of them will be saved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, we're going to go to John 10. I said, I think, maybe last week, election part three, election part two, that we were going to talk about John 10 on limited atonement. And I think John 10 actually is maybe the clearest, for me at least. Uh, Very clear, very clear. So here Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about being the good shepherd. Uh, I'm going to start up in verse 14. Skip around a little bit, but starting in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I, listen to what he says, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, and we, we know very clearly that sheep are, throughout the Bible, referred to as God's people, his, his elect, his church. They're his sheep. And Jesus is their shepherd. And and then because he refers to other people as wolves, which are clearly not sheep, or other people as goats, which are you know. There's, so there's these distinctions made. And I'll continue. And he goes, and I have other sheep that are not a part of this fold. So we talked about that with evangelism too. Like, okay, there's other sheep that Jesus died for. Mm-hmm. Now that's our motivation in evangelism. We know they're out there. We just have to find them and bring the gospel to them. And the gospel will be brought to him if they are his sheep, and they will listen to his voice. He's, he goes, I must bring them in, them also, and they will listen to my voice. Uh, but then we'll jump down, uh, further down in chapter 10, we'll go to uh, verse 26, uh, and Jesus again is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you do not believe, and remember again what we said about believing, who are those who believe? The elect. 
those who have been regenerated. But you do not believe. Why do you not believe? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's very, very clear, actually. It's it's a very clear distinction. Why don't the Pharisees believe? Because they're not his sheep. And he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And we just talked about atonement. There needs to be blood. There needs to be blood spilled. There's a laying down of a life. Jesus died on the cross. He laid down his life to pay for the sin that we could not pay for. It's very clear that he only pays for, uh, he only lays lays down his life for the sheep. And then again, his sheep hear his voice, so they will come to him and follow him from the gospel. Very, very, very clear. Very clear. Like, I don't know how... Like, I think that is very clear. If you want to say there's no passages on, you know, limited atonement, definite atonement, limited redemption, whatever you want to call it, then I don't know what how you handle that one. Uh, But, you know, we'll go to other passages. uh, Just a handful of chapters later, John um, 15, um, 13. I'll just read it quick. It says, uh, greater love has... Uh, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 13 and 14. So this idea again that Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He's talking to the disciples. You are my friends. So there is again a distinction made that he's only laying his life down for the people that he loves, his friends, the people that obey his commandments. Who are those who obey his commandments? They're the people that he regenerates, fills with the Spirit. Uh, they're the people that he redeemed on the cross. Like well, That's clearly through Scripture. Only those who are in the Spirit can obey God, mm-hmm. and uh, only those who obey God love God. So there is just, again, a distinction made. What we're trying to show you is that Jesus' atonement on the cross was not for every single person who's ever existed. Right. Uh, do you have another one pulled up? Yeah, you know, I think um, Matthew 25... Um, I won't read this whole thing, verses uh, 31 through 46, but this discourse that Jesus is giving here as he's talking about the final judgment, in verse 31 he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all of the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Right, right. And then, um, of course, the whole thing about I was thirsty, you gave me, you gave me water. I was hungry, you gave me food. Uh, and so he's talking to the sheep here. Uh, and then, of course, the sheep say, "But when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or feed you, clothe you, give you water?" Um, and then Jesus says, "Well, if you did it to the least of these, my brothers, then you did it to me." Uh, and then in verse forty-one, uh, he says. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and thirsty, and you didn't feed me or give me a drink. And so he goes on to say that. And then um, down in verse 45, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Absolutely. Yep. I'm going to put another one on top of it. Here we go. (laughs) Just wrapping them off. 
John, the Gospel of John seems to be very clear on this stuff. John 17, We, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar that John 17 is, is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. I mean, how insightful is this? This is the words that Jesus, who is God, is praying to God the Father, who is God. Amazing. And he says, listen to what some of the things that he says. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So, here we have this word all. We're going to talk about that word all a little bit later, but who did he give eternal life to? To all he had, who the Father had given mm-hmm. Christ. So, Christ gave eternal life to all that the Father had already given him. And we, we can logically and pretty easily realize that, hey, those are the people that that God foreknew. Those are the people that were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Like, that makes sense. These are the people that Christ in his in his knowledge, and in God the Father's knowledge, took their sin on his shoulders on the cross in that time. Those people the Father gave to him uh, to die for. And he goes on to say, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, I have having accomplished accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, like again, accomplished. Like it was it was finished. He did this mm-hmm. work and he accomplished it. He finished it. Uh and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Ooh, I like that, because that just shows the deity of Christ. I have manifested your name to the people whom you whom you gave me out of the world. And again, there's that word world. And these are words that we get hung up on that people get hung up on the word all the word world like oh john three sixteen for god so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life we for, i don't know why but people get really hung up on the word world well that means every single person well right but even in john three sixteen, so that whoever believes right, in there's him, a distinction there right i mean it's even within that passage it's it's laid out in a way that like you said is distinctive Exactly. I mean, I'll just stop there. We can keep going through his high priestly prayer, and you'll see the fact that there's is, he's talking very specifically about a certain people, people that the Father has given him, his people, his church. Mm-hmm. You know, very distinctive, setting apart, very particular, uh, specific. It's not every single person. Uh, this is clear. This right. is so clear throughout Scripture. And again... Why do people go to hell? Because their sin has not been punished, and they have to face the punishment. Right, exactly. Because, again, it, you know, if you're holding the unlimited atonement thing where it's incumbent upon a person to receive this gift, then, which I think many of us are taught, right? Like, we, we use that language when we're yeah. evangelizing. Like, we use the example of, well, look, Christ already paid for your sin, so... It's like having a hundred dollars on the table. If you just reach out and take it, it's right, yours. Just take it, yeah. But that's that's not what Scripture actually teaches about salvation. No. Scripture teaches in Romans six twenty three that salvation is a free gift of God. Right. You don't you don't have to reach out and take it. Salvation is a gift that's given to you by God, which matches perfectly with what we know about election. Exactly. Exactly. And now, this maybe this is a good point to bring up. This is what people struggle with, too, on this doctrine, is that, well, that means that I can't give a, a sincere plea for repentance to everybody because I don't know if they're an elect. 
Well, certainly you can. Yeah. You can give a sincere plea for them. You can le- legitimately look somebody in the eye and say, if you repent and believe, you will be saved. Yeah. Because if they do, then they will be saved. Because what, what does that prove then? It proves. Proves that they were a member of the elect. Exactly. And that's what yeah. Paul's saying in First Thessalonians. I know that God chose you mm-hmm. because my gospel came not only in word but in power and in full conviction of the Holy Spirit. Right. So Paul is giving this plea to everybody. Every person, you know, Paul was an amazing evangelist. Obviously, mm-hmm. we know this. Like, maybe the best ever. <laughs> right. And he gave that sincere plea to everybody he came across. Repent and believe. Turn to Christ as your Lord and your Savior. But then he goes on to say, but I know God chose you because you actually did, basically. Mm-hmm. You were convicted of your sin. So I can, as I'm evangelizing, and you can too if you're listening, you can give a sincere you know, offer. If you turn to Christ, you will be saved. If right. you trust in him as your Lord and your Savior, if you can, like John Romans 10, I mean, if you confess right. with your mouth yep, and believe in your mouth. Absolutely. Amen. That's scriptural. That's absolutely true. You can right. make that offer. But then, obviously, the only only the ones that are elect will truly respond because it comes yep. in the power of the Holy Spirit and regeneration where they're able to do that. So I think that's a, a good enough, unless you have any more you want to bring up, a good enough survey of some of the passages that do indeed, you know, pretty clearly teach yeah. uh, limited I mean, we atonement. Could, we could go on and on. We could go to the Great White Throne Judgment. You know, we could just— yeah, we could look through the Old Testament. I mean, like, I mean, just shutting off examples. You know, look at when the Israelites conquered Canaan. So, you know, I mean, the the Canaanites they weren't allowed to stay in the land. God ordered their death. So, were were they saved? I mean, I think inherently we know the answer is no. Right. Uh, you know, what about the Egyptians that were killed during the Exodus? Uh, I I think. We all understand that that universalism is a heretical doctrine, right? And it's completely unbiblical. There's yeah. Jesus is very clear that there are people who will go to the lake of fire. Yeah, he talked about hell more than anybody. Yep. I mean, Jesus did. I mean, and even if he didn't talk about it, and it was somewhere else in the Bible, well, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both God. Which means it's if it's the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit's words, it's Jesus' words. So, right. But but Jesus talked about it more than in yeah. anybody did. Uh, so hell is a real place, and real people go to it. Yeah. Um, God, I have a verse written down. I don't know why I have it written down. I'm just gonna quick read it to myself and see if I want to read it out loud. <laughs> oh yeah, this is interesting. This this idea of the you like you're talking about the white throne judgment. Uh, Goats, sheep, you know, and we have in Scripture, you know, this is a story I'll bring up. It was uh, maybe a month and a half ago. Maybe you've heard me say it before, but I do this thing called the uh, apologetic booth at the North Dakota State University campus where I rent a table in the Memorial Union. Put up a sign that literally just says, got questions? We're Christians. Ask us anything you want about our faith. And, you know. Amazingly, we get people that come up to us and ask us questions about our faith, which is great. And we get to get into good spiritual conversation, and we get to uh, share the gospel through it. Because it's it's pretty simple, actually, especially when the, the conversation starts spiritual to transition into the gospel. Pretty simple. Um, but we had one guy who held the belief in annihilationism that 
those who go to hell are annihilated and cease to exist. We have no evidence for that in Scripture, none. Uh, the only evidence that is very, very, very shaky is this this symbol of of the place outside of Jerusalem that they used to burn their trash with, and it was a fire that that was always burning, but it would consume the trash completely. You know, they just are totally pulling things out of nowhere for that one. But they have to ignore the explicit scripture that 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 uh, hell is an eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, he he had this idea. He said something, and it was really it caught me as he said it, and I addressed it. But you know, why would God, if if every human being is God's child, why would God send his child to hell? Like you wouldn't send your child to hell. And I go, wait a minute now. One, the children of God are pretty exclusively those who God has saved, the elect, those whom he has redeemed and justified. Like, those are the children of God. There's this there's, there's this real doctrine called adoption, mm-hmm. where we are adopted as sons and daughters yeah. into the family of God. We're adopted. So there's scripture. Then I said, but actually, there's scripture that says that if you're not a child of God, you're actually called a child of the devil. Mm-hmm. And so here is another distinction, kind of making distinctions again. And it was, I had it written down, John 8, verse 44. says this, uh, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So, yep. there is this reality that if you're not an elect, if you're not in Christ, you're a a child of the devil, and you do his desires, which is evil. I mean, very clear distinctions throughout Scripture. Yeah. So let's, uh, we're going to go into the problem passages now. These passages that cause people the greatest confusion in, in seeing uh, clearly the doctrine of limited atonement in Scripture. The first thing we're going to talk about is 1 Timothy 2.4. So we'll turn there right now. Just give us a second. <laughs> For some reason, Timothy... It's a, it's a big book. It's a huge book. So, it's, oh, I got lucky. I just happened to turn to it. Sometimes I can't find First Timothy for some reason. But I found it. Okay, First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. You want to just read that for us, Adam? Yeah. Um, I'll start in verse 3. Okay. Uh, this is good, and it please, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Right. So here we have. I, let's just start basic. What can we get from the Scripture? Okay, we can get the fact that, as it says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Sure. And we, we do see in Scripture this idea that God, he, he, he takes great delight in repentance. He wants people to turn from their wickedness. God hates sin, hates it so much that he will punish it justly. So there is this reality that if God hates sin so much, he does have a desire for people to, to repent and come to right. a knowledge of the truth. To delight in him. Certainly that's true. But it doesn't give us any grounds to say that 
just because God desires all to be saved, that he will save all. Right. So, because, because, again, like we have to take these passages in proper hermeneutical standing. Um, or maybe maybe it's better said we have to approach these passages with proper hermeneutics. Yeah. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we just laid out several passages that speak directly against uh, the idea of universalism, that everybody will go to heaven. Mm-hmm. So if we know, just taking the passages that we talked about or taking even the judgment where we know that you know, if your name is not written in the book of life, you're going to go to the lake of fire. Or, right. you know, Christ is going to separate separate the sheep and the goats, and the goats are going to go to the lake of fire. Um, we know that there's people who aren't going to be saved. Right. So we know then that this passage cannot mean all people that ever existed, because right. then who would go to hell? And so, but nor does it say that it that God saves all people. Right. So again, it's it's a it's a problem passage that really isn't a problem passage. Right. Uh, I want to add something though. Yes, and and it it again has completely to do with context and hermeneutical principles. Okay, we can take we can pluck one verse out of a context, and we can we can tend to morph it a certain way, depending on our our pre understandings or what we want it to say, what our desires. You know, if we coming if we're coming from an Arminian position, and certainly if we're coming from a Calvinist position. Whatever our position is, our, our biases are going to tend to drift that way. Right. So we can tend to read certain passages to fit that. Now, so we have to be reasonable in interpreting Scripture correctly. What does this actually say? So I want you to notice the context around it. We'll start, just start in the very beginning of, um, of a chapter 2. It says, First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, and Paul's talking to Timothy, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. You have that word, all there. For kings, now he gives us some descriptions. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So, certainly if we were to interpret that word all in our problem passage, specifically chapter or verse four, even if it was every single person, it still would not teach against limited atonement. Right. But we have evidence in the previous verses that there is it is reasonable to interpret the word all as a type, not as an individual, like every individual, but as a type. Because he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. So there is this idea that there, you could be under the assumption that I don't need to pray for the salvation of my rulers. I don't need to pray the, for the salvation of of the president of the United States, like, or of these type of people, or this type of people, or this type of people. You can certainly see how back in the day it would be pretty hard. You could see a temptation for uh, a converted Jew to not want to pray for the salvation of Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Like there is this. We have these, you know. You right. Call it racism. I don't care what you want to call it. <laughs> you know, uh, richism or whatever it is. I don't like rich people. I don't want them to be saved. I don't right. like Joe Smo down the down the road. He's you know he's a liberal. Uh, you know I'm not going to pray for his salvation. Like whatever. So right. there's this. There we have evidence in this in this passage that the word all is a type. Pray for the rich type. 
pray for this ethnicity type, pray for this nation, pray for these type of people. And we obviously know that somebody from every tongue, tribe, and nation will indeed be saved. Right. So there is this reality like pray for types, pray for all types of people to be saved. But again, that, that we, we can get that from this text, but even if we still treated it as every single individual, it still would not teach against limited atonement. Right. The next problem passage, which might be the biggest of them all, is Second Peter three nine, so we'll go there now. <laughs> and I, th- I think th- there it is. Yeah, I'm like I think Peter is after Timothy, <laughs> and it is. <laughs> oh man. Okay, Second Peter three <clears throat> nine. Go ahead and read that, Adam. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right. Read it once again. Read it again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right. So again, we have the word all. Uh, We have a word any. Um... So what we you know? What do we do without those words? Any, all, and again, we see throughout Scripture that, like the words like world or all, they're they they're not. We 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 can't just say that they only mean all people. Like Paul, for instance, we'll use the example of the word world in Romans one. He says that. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world as he's, as he's writing a letter to a very specific church in Rome. Your faith is proclaimed to all the world. We have two of those words, all and world. It's like, actually, no, it wasn't. It was really only known, the faith of the Romans was really only known in that area, in the Mediterranean area. So it's actually a very, very, very small portion of the world that their faith was being proclaimed in. But Paul used that word as, uh, you want to call it hyperbole, whatever you want to call it. But figure of speech. Figure of speech. The point is is that the word all, the word world, these words that we have problems with or any, we can tend to just read them one specific way. When, and certainly we don't need to. Certainly we see in Scripture that these words are used in many different ways. And certainly we know in our own life that we use these words in many different ways ourselves. So why why should we expect that the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of these people are going to use them in one specific way? So we can ask the self, ourselves the question again. Well, are all saved? No. 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 We've, we've very clearly said that already. All are not saved. So we can't interpret this as, as meaning that all will be saved because all will not be saved. We know that. So that, that you could say that can that limits our interpretation of this passage. We start to get some clarity because we know uh, very clear teachings in other parts of the Scripture. All are not saved. So... But there is this real true sense, though, that that God cannot wish or, you know, it's just not wishing. You could say, but God does not desire or God does not will. It's been translated different ways. So think of, OK, the word not wishing. Uh, 
put in will, but is patient toward you, not, you know, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, or not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So yeah, there, like we talked about again, there is a sense that God does not desire uh, or, or does not wish that that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there also is another way that you can interpret this. Interpret this, and we know f- we've talked about this in the as we talked about election. That Peter likes to talk about election. He starts his book uh, talking about the elect. First Peter, he talks about the elect. We talked about how second second uh, Peter, he you know he starts by talking about the elect and how certain people are called and stuff. So it would be reasonable for us to interpret this all or any as meaning the elect that God does not wish uh, or will or desire that any of the elect should perish. Yeah, well, I I mean, this passage in particular begs for context. Yeah. So, number one, who is this letter written to? Right. This letter is written to believers. Right. And I will prove it to you several times. (laughs) So, 2 Peter, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is who this letter is to. It is not to unbelievers. This letter was not written to unbelievers. This letter was specifically written to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And then... uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Okay, and then in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Okay, so, yeah, like, Peter is not writing this letter to be evangelistic, although certainly the Holy Spirit can use it in that sense. Right. But this letter, again, hermeneutically, using proper hermeneutical principles, this letter was written to believers. Mm-hmm. That is the intended audience for this letter. Now, second, uh, if we go back to verse 1, what is it that Peter is trying to remind us of? This portion of this letter speaks specifically about the day of the Lord, which, you know, we have all these nice sayings like, oh, this is the year 2019 of the year of our Lord 2019 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. This is not just some some way, some figure of speech that they used. The day of the Lord is a specific event in Scripture, and it is an event that is mired in judgment. Right. It is a somber event that is a specific time period in which God will pour out unfiltered and unrestrained judgment on the world. Right, right, right. And so uh, if if we look back just uh, to verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire— being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so right there, if we want want distinction, 
there are ungodly. Right. The ungodly will be destroyed. Then verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is, a, is as one day. So if we want to talk about, you know, figures of speech. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, what you already talked about, Sam, with the word all being used as a figure of speech. Right. Um, it, here, Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter is is speaking metaphorically. He's saying, look, God doesn't understand time the same way that we do. Okay. This passage, um, verse 8, has also been taken out of context to, um, to, to relate to, well, what is what does one 24-hour time period yeah, look certainly. like to God? Yep. You know, and saying, oh, well, you know, we can, we can talk about days lasting for thousands of years because of yeah. of Second Peter 3, 8. No, no, you can't, because Peter is using a figure of speech here. Yeah, and it, he's, yeah. he's not saying that, that a thousand years is a day to God. He's saying that it is like right. a thousand years. Right. It's just, it's just okay. simile. Yep. So uh, then in verse 9... Uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what what he's talking about here is that the day of the Lord is coming. Yep. This judgment, which we talked about in verse 7, is coming, and that uh, God is storing up this judgment because he doesn't want any of the elect to to be caught up in it. He, right. He wants the elect to come to salvation before the day of the Lord. Right. Uh, or, you know, like in, in order so that he can, the elect can be saved from the judgment. Right. And I, I'm, I'm really kind of summarizing yeah. that, that whole thing. Right. But then in verse 10, uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, and then then verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So, I mean, that's the this is the whole purpose right. that, that Peter is writing this to say, look, the day of the Lord is coming. People, like... People are going to be judged. The ungodly are going to be judged. And in light of that, you need to remember that God is being patient. Mm -hmm. God is holding out his judgment until the elect are saved. Mm -hmm. And then God's judgment will be poured out. And And in light of all of that, you need to be godly people. I mean, yeah, it's totally wrapped up in, in that right. context. Yeah. So I guess why do I say all of that, right? Because like, that was a long discourse on the day of the Lord. Yeah. But, <laughs> like, uh, I say all of that to say that this, that, that verse 9, uh, this problem passage, has absolutely nothing to do with unlimited or limited atonement. Right. Nothing at all. Right. It does. It, the, verse 9 has absolutely no standing as it relates to the topic of atonement, because that's not what that, that that's not what this context is about no. at all. No, no, and that's the problem. See again, these problem passages, it, it's it's simply as it's just hermeneutical principles. They wouldn't be problem passages. They right. shouldn't be. We get we get 
we have these presuppositions and these pre-understandings, and then we we want to see validation for them in the scriptures because we want to be justified in believing that this is what's true. Mm-hmm. So we come across a, a verse, a single verse that has a few words that seem to be able to be construed to 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 support my position, and we take this verse and we just just like make it the the this is it here it is this is what it says clear as day and you take it out of its context and it's just like what are you doing this right. please don't do that uh it, it, and i mean i can't do that either like if i here's something that you should really strive towards even if you know something is clearly taught in scripture don't use a verse that doesn't talk about that mm-hmm. to to teach that Go right. to a verse where that is talked about in the context of that, if that makes sense. Yep. So th- that that's something that, uh, like, th- this happens all the time. We 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 want to prove a point, and so we we find a passage that seems to say something, and and it, this might be true. Indeed, this is in scripture, but this doctrine, or whatever it is, but because I'm lazy, I'm not willing to go find a, a passage or a text that actually is talking about that doctrine. Right. I'll just be lazy. Oh, I found something that says the right words. Mm-hmm. But, you know, don't even do that. Be diligent in your study and be diligent in finding the texts that really do contextually teach with correct hermeneutical, hermeneutical principles, I guess, you know, what you want to teach or, you know, if you're looking for uh, evidence for an Arminian perspective or a Calvinist perspective, like... You just gotta. You have to correctly interpret the scriptures, and right. and people have said, people have said, literally, Arminians have said, like some of the leading Arminians. Well, Calvinists have the exegesis, but Arminians have the philosophy. Right. And I want to go. That's been said. That's been like, like some of the leading Arminians, the guy, like the people that like they are the they are the the guys that everybody goes to in their Arminian camp to to get their proofs. And they say that the Calvinists have the exegesis. That means the Calvinists have the Bible be, be on their side for this teaching, for their teaching. But we have the philosophy. Like, whoa. If that doesn't say something, then I don't know what does. Like, right. like if, if you truly believe the Bible is your ultimate authority and it's God's revealed word to mankind and it's, it's truthful on everything that it says, then I would hope that you would want the exegesis over the philosophy. But the thing is... I would say the Calvinists have the philosophy too. Mm-hmm. Uh, very clearly, they have the philosophy. If you don't believe that uh, the Calvinist position is is not, if you if you don't believe it's philosophically coherent or logically uh, sound, then you haven't read Jonathan Edwards' "The Freedom of the Will." One of the most right. brilli- brilliant philosophers ever to live. Very clearly laid out a pretty good. Well, I shouldn't say clearly because. <laughs> His writing is is hard to comprehend, <laughs> but what what philosopher hasn't written work that's not hard to understand? Right. Any means. Well, and I mean, there there's a whole other elephant in the room that we're not even talking about in these two passages, and yeah. that's that. Again, these these passages they don't have anything to do with uh, with the limitation of the the atonement. Right, mm-hmm. um, they they don't have anything to do with atonement. What they do have to do with what they are teaching us about is the character of God. Right, and that's where we kind of get into this desires of God, right, and the so, will of God. So, yeah, God doesn't will that anybody should perish. Right, but 
I'm, I'm here to tell you that God doesn't always get what he wants. God is sovereign. Right. But that doesn't mean that all of God's desires are going to come to fruition. Right. And that, that might sound weird, but just hang with me a right. second. Hang with us. Because <laughs> if you think about Jesus' prayer, Jesus prayed that he that the cup would be taken from him. Right. Jesus prayed that he wouldn't go to the cross. Jesus didn't want to die. Right. In, in, at least in that moment. Right. And But Jesus submitted himself in that same prayer immediately after he said, if it be, if this cup can pass from me, please let it pass from me. I'm paraphrasing because right. I don't have the scripture right in front of me. But, um, if, but then then he says, but, but yep. you know, let your will, not my will, yeah, be done. Exactly. And so we have a full deity Christ saying, "Look, if we don't have to do it this way, can we do it a different way?" Sure. But if you want to do it this way, then let's do it this way. Sure. And, of course, that was the only way to do it. Right. And, of course, Christ did it because right. he's totally obedient. He's totally right. holy. So uh, it, it's what I'm trying to say is just because God is saying, yeah, I don't, I don't want any of you to die, doesn't mean that that's what's going to happen. Right. And, w- and we see this. We see this throughout scriptures. This is where we get into a, a, a theological topic called— the multiple wills of God, two wills in God. We've we've made this. We've we see this distinction in Scripture, where God seems to have, and it's 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 clearly presented throughout Scripture that God has two wills. And theologians throughout history have have called these wills different things. I'm going to read a list of what they've been called. Uh, <laughs> I mean, eh, call them what you want, but this is from the book. It's a very small book. I recommend it to you highly on this topic. And it's Does God Desire All to Be Saved by John Piper. Short little read, 54 pages, I think. Uh, you can read it in an hour, no problem. Very deep, but this is uh, one thing he says. The distinction in the ways God wills is not a new um, uh, contrivance. It has been expressed in various ways throughout the centuries. For example, theologians have spoken of sovereign will and moral will, efficient will and permissive will, secret will, and revealed will, will of decree and will of command, decreative will and perceptive will, and I'm going to read some, I think it's Latin, so forgive me, <laughs> voluntas signa, will of sign, and voluntas beneplacida, or whatever, <laughs> will of good pleasure. So theologians for for a long, long time has have seen these two types of will in, God, in, in the Bible as display, you know, as in reference to God and how he wills. So this isn't something that's new. A lot of different theologians have came to the same conclusion. That's why there's so many different names. They've mm-hmm. they've tried to name what what they see and but the point is is that that there there is a, in a sense a very real sense that God does have two wills. One will, and I like to call I like to my favorite words are the will of decree and the will of command. So in one sense God has a command. Don't sin. Like, you can even think of the very beginning with Adam and Eve. You do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Will of command. It's his will and desire that they do not sin. He hates sin. Mm-hmm. So there is a real sense that he wills that they do not do this. Right, but, but what happened anyway? What happened anyway? They ate. And yep. we know that God is sovereign over all things and that Ephesians 1 tells us that all things work out according to the counsel of God's will. Will. So... In a sense, he commanded them 
willed this will of command, don't eat, but in a other sense he willed that or ordained you want to say whatever however you want to say willed that they would eat so that he could display his glorious grace and could mm-hmm. come down and save the elect <laughs> make a people that are holy and blameless that worship him for his grace so there's reasons and, and we see this all the time in our own lives we think well i don't have two wills well certainly you do uh right like i mean I, i'm no parent but you know of course we've talked about thunder who yeah I- isn't with us this week but uh you know like I don't want to yell at Thunder when he does something bad. Right. But at the same time, I don't want him to do things that are that 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 he may hurt himself on. Right. You know, so like uh, you know, if he digs a hole in the backyard that he might later trip and break his foot on, well, like I I I certainly don't want him to dig a hole. Right. I mean, but I don't I don't I also don't want to discipline him. I don't want to yell at him. Right. Um, you know, and I try hard not to yell at him, but right. you know, and this, it's it's very similar with kids. Like you know, we don't want to yell at kids or punish kids or, uh, you know, like we don't want to display that punishment, but we also don't want them to hurt themselves right. or or put themselves in a position that right. that can cause so harm. We tend to in our being have the we we tend to uh, prioritize. You could say desires, mm-hmm. uh, rank desires. There's certain desires that trump others. So, uh, an example would be that I think that's a great example with disciplining children or disciplining your Rottweiler dog named Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like, say, uh, say you got an infection in your leg and it's spreading, and you need to get your leg amputated in order to survive. You desire the the survival of your being of your body mm-hmm. over the keeping of your leg. Right. So in, in some sense, no, I don't desire to lose my leg. I mm-hmm. don't want that. I don't want to lose my leg. But in another sense, but I will will lose my leg if it mm-hmm. means that I save my body. So there's we and there's probably plenty of examples throughout human history yeah. where a judge uh, has to punish or or condemn his own his his very child to maybe a death penalty or mm-hmm. put him in prison because his son was wicked and and went against the law so because the 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 judge desires or the ruler of a land or a king or whoever it might be desires to uphold justice in his nation more than the fact more than his son going to jail or getting beheaded or whatever it is he goes against his desire to see his son live to fulfill a greater will right. and that's to uphold justice in uh for mm-hmm. who knows millions of people in a land right. or i mean shoot like why do why do we make the health decisions that we do right like why why do you i mean there are some few people uh that really enjoy going to the gym and lifting weights like it is it is a passion of theirs right but most people who go to the gym do it because they know that they have to they they have a desire to be healthy but they don't really want to do the work right but they're prioritizing their desire to be healthy. And on the flip side, people there are a lot of people who choose. They're like, nah. I mean, I, I really want to be healthy, but I'm still gonna eat this entire pizza, right? Right. Exa- well, you know exactly. I mean? So, or I'm gonna have. I'm our, gonna, our I'm gonna desi- go get tacos. Right? Our, des- our our desires as human beings are extremely complex, mm-hmm. very complex. So, right. If now I, multiply that by infinity. In, exactly. That's the point. And multiply that by infinity because we're talking about God and take away sin. Yeah. So. Exactly. So, <laughs> wow, Adam, <laughs> are you reading my mind? <laughs> but the point is, like, we. Do you want me to pretend like I can ex- uh, 
comprehend the complexity of the emotions of God? Like, I can't comprehend the complexity of an infinite, God, an infinite God's emotional state. Mm-hmm. One, his emotions are always perfect and true and pure right. and righteous and holy. Like, we can trust that. But again, there's a complexity there that that is secret that I just can't get. So, yes, we we when God reveals himself, if a God reveals himself, an infinite God reveals himself to a finite being, there's going to be some mystery and there's going to be some things like we've we've been talking about through and through this whole time that don't quite compute in our mind. Two wills, isn't that a contradiction? Like what? Like no, it's not. Like there are things that are just beyond our understanding and this is mm-hmm. probably one of them certainly. Yeah. I mean I, I think I think we get it right in in these examples. I, I think we can understand this to a certain degree. It, God doesn't want anybody to go to the lake of fire, but there are people who aren't going to be saved. Right, it, it, sin has to be punished. God, yeah, God wills that He will punish sin. Yeah, and He desires that too. And we do. It's it's confusing. It certainly is because we see in Scripture that God does not. Find he does not gain pleasure, have find pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, mm-hmm. but in other sense, in other scriptures, we do see that he does, in a sense, find pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Yeah, I mean, God's holiness demands that God is just. Yeah, and so does His love, uh, for the record, because God's love for Christ. Yep. Like He poured out judgment on Christ. Right. So God's love for Christ demands that those who don't accept that, who don't believe and call on the name of Christ, face the punishment that Christ faced yeah. for their own sin. Right. So, like, not only is it just, but it is also a demand of love. Right. Um, and then, of course, the same can be said for us. Like, God's love for us says that, well, sin still has to be punished. Right. So... It, the people who don't call in the name of Christ to be saved are still responsible to the character of God for their sin. Absolutely. And so Arminians like to, there's some of the most notable Arminians have uh, very staunchly tried to say that there is no, uh, there's only one will in God and that the Bible does not teach that there's these two wills. Uh, and one, it's like, well, then you haven't read your Bible. Uh, but two, you believe that there's two wills, Mr. Arminian, because here's the deal. Okay, so if again we're 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 arguing as though somebody's not a universalist, because if you want to be a universalist, go for it, but you have no basis in Scripture whatsoever. So if you are an Arminian and you are not a universalist, which is actually the case for most Arminians, is they're not universalists. Thank the Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, thank the Lord that they're not totally logically coherent with each with with themselves. But <clears throat> if you're an Arminian and and you want to say that God doesn't ha- doesn't have two wills, and you want to say that you're not a universalist, well, then you have to say that okay. God desires all to be saved, okay? Because they, they, they want to, again, use those texts to prove their point on this. He desires all to be saved. That means that he died for everyone. He died for every person, okay? But then you're also not a universalist, which means you believe that it didn't work for everyone. <clears throat> Excuse me. kind of get a raspy throat, and I finished all my water. But, okay, then you believe that 
uh, okay, that it didn't work for everyone. He, he died for everyone, but not everyone's saved, and some people go to hell. Then you start to create a distinction in wills. One, he wills that all be saved. Not all are saved. So what is that other will that is working in God that keeps him from saving all? If he has, okay, if God has one will, this is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Then if he desires all to be saved, all will be saved. That's the point. If God has one will, then if he desires and wills that all be saved, all will be saved. But, again, we're arguing as though this Arminian is not a universalist. So then you have to ask, well, wait a minute, though. Not all are saved, so... How is God, how is this one will, how are you keeping this together then? Mm -hmm. And what you find is that they believe in two wills in God too. But this is what the other will that they believe ultimately is. That God desires, certainly that all would be saved, but he desires more that he uphold human autonomy. Autonomy, like he desires more that humanity has total free will. And that's just crazy. Because that's what it boils down to. Ultimately, what Arminian doctrine seeks to do is protect this idea that man has free will. And man certainly does have free will. But I want I want to be clear that man's free will has always been, mm-hmm. is today, and will forevermore be subject to God's will. Exactly. And constrained by their nature. So, you want to ask the question then, okay, do you see in Scripture where you can defend with sound hermeneutical principles that God desires above all things, like literally above all things, to uphold and protect the total sovereign free will of man? And I don't know where you can find that in Scripture. I just don't know where you can find that, where where there's this verse that God says that above all things he desires to, to have man be totally free from his sovereign will and the determiners of their destiny. Like, that just does not seem right. That does not seem biblical, one, because it's not. It's not in the Bible. Uh, so that would be if you wanted to take Ar- an Arminian who wants to say there's only one will in God, but also is not a universalist, then that's eventually the logical conclu- conclusion, is that there is you believe there is two wills, and this is where that ultimate will would end I mean, up falling. I, I can't tell you where in the Bible it would say that, because it doesn't, but uh, I can tell you where it says the exact opposite. Thank you, Adam. Would you please read that for us? Yeah, I, <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's se- several examples, but just Matthew chapter 9 Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Okay, so this is Matthew writing about his own salvation. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I want to I point this out. This is Matthew writing about when he was called to follow Christ. And Matthew's own account from his own hands says that Jesus said to him, 
follow me, and he rose and followed him. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in this passage does Matthew, giving an account of his own salvation, say, Jesus said, will you please come and follow me? And I'm like, hmm, hmm. yeah, you know what? That sounds better than what, all this tax collecting I'm doing. I'm going to do it. Right. It's not what happened. Jesus gave Matthew a command. Right. And immediately Matthew obeyed. Right. Any will that Matthew had to keep on tax collecting and cheating and robbing, which is what the tax collectors did, was immediately overruled by the will of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to order. Like, Jesus's will superseded Matthew's will. Right. And and isn't that not what we see in John 1, where it says, you're born not by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but the will of God. Right. So, rebirth, being born again, regeneration, is totally by the will of God, not by the will of man. Mm-hmm. And we, we see this same thing happen at the call of all of the apostles. Yeah, and very, well, clear, disciples. very clearly Paul, just, too. Just yeah. boom, he was going his own way. He had his mindset. This right. was his This is his decision. Mm-hmm. For Jesus just to abruptly uh, come in the middle of his, his decision and his, his desire to persecute the church and blind him, it would be to usurp and go against his autonomy as a, right. as a sovereign individual. Well, he's not a sovereign individual, and, and like he can't usurp God's sovereignty by any right. means. So that's interesting. So that's that's that logical conclusion if you wanted mm-hmm. to. Again, th- that was kind of a hypothetical situation, but there is a lot of Arminians that want to very boldly defend the one, one will in God and also want to still hold that they're not universalists, but this is where you logically have to go then. Right. Where we would say is that we believe there is two wills in God. God can desire that all be saved, but will that not all will be saved. And what is that supreme desire for finally why not all are saved? And we talked about this in when we went through Romans 9 so that he can display his power and wrath in order that he can display his mercy for vessels to to you know prepared for honorable use so it's yep. like th- that's it right there like god desires ultimately to display his glory that's why he created the universe to display his glory and display his power to display his wrath to display his justice ultimately to display his grace and his mercy like these are things uh that he desires above all things to display he wants mm-hmm. to display his glory and in order to do that then he will need to display his wrath and justice on those who do not believe in him. Mm -hmm. That's part of the deal. Uh, So, I mean, goodness, we're at about a minute or an hour and 20 minutes now. But I think (laughs) I think this is good because, you know, we we could have split this into two, but I think this is good. Um, And uh, yeah, R.C. Sproul says that limited atonement is the easiest of the five points to affirm, which he's just trying to make a point. But the point is, is that these are they they are cohesive. Mm -hmm. They they go with each other. They are scripturally grounded. They are. They really are. Um, And I would really plead with you and ask you just to set aside your pre-understandings or your presuppositions or your biases or your own intuitions or you know the, the the heart of man is wicked above all things mm-hmm. 
And our flesh, even if you're a believer, you still have a fleshliness to you that does desire what's opposed to God. And now that we are in Christ, we have the ability to put to death that old self, that old man, and we're called and commanded by God to put off the old and put on the new. But we still have to do it. So it's an active thing that we do right now as Christians. So there is going to be a part of you and a part of me and a part of Adam and a, even a part of your pastor that that wants what's opposed to God. But we have to, we have to put it to death. Yeah. So don't rely on your desires then. Right. Or your own understanding or your own pre you know intuitions or your feelings. This is the whole thing. Like we want to live by our feelings. Like that is so not right. Your heart is wicked above all things. Don't trust your feelings. Trust what the Bible says. Right. And I think that we have made a reasonable defense that the Bible does indeed teach limited atonement, whatever you want to call it, you know. It teaches that the sacrifice of Christ is 100% effective effective for those who will believe. Exactly. And that's exactly what we believe. So, I just put a piece of licorice in my mouth, so I probably just <laughs> stopped talking about... We'll end it there for episode number eight on Limited Atonement. Next week... Uh, well, man... We're at about Christmas right now, so there'll be yeah. a, probably a little bit of a break until we get the next episode Happy up. Happy Christmas. Yeah. So there might be a couple-week break until the next one. Who knows? But then we'll hit it up with uh, Irresistible Grace, finish it up with Perseverance of the Saints, and then talk about something else after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. Have a Merry Christmas. Yep. Bye.